0: Okay. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah, Ta'ala. we seek blessings on the prophet, peace be upon him. So we're continuing through, through Khalid Abu Fadl's book, Reasoning with God. We're still on the author's note. And as mentioned, we're starting out really really slowly just to lay out <clears throat> all, all the foundations. Last week, we spent quite a bit of time looking at the evolution, especially in terms of Europe. Uh, from pre-modernity to modernity to post-modernity and such and also over the past two classes we compared and contrasted uh, uh, how does the curriculum of a madrasa work versus how does the curriculum of the uh, secular academy work and the fundamental difference is that in the madrasa you're answering the question what does Allah want from me and in the secular academy you're answering the question how does the world work so you can both be studying the same book but in the Madrasa you're studying it with the intention of practice with the intention of embodiment whereas with the academy you're not studying with the intention of practicing it so imagine you're learning a language let's say French you can learn French on the street and after a certain amount of time you can communicate with the people all around you and the longer you spend time uh, uh, among the people the more precise your language will get or you can study French grammar in a class. And after you take a whole course in French grammar, you will still know almost nothing about the language in terms of communicating because you won't have the vocabulary. This is a very common problem when people are studying Arabic uh, that a lot of our mothers have still uh, teach Arabic from the perspective of someone who has a long-term plan to become an alim alima, which is that they will spend a whole lot of time on grammar. With a little bit of vocabulary and you can finish all of the grammar lessons and still have almost no Arabic knowledge and 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 but the reason they do it that way is because the assumption is that then you're going to be building your vocabulary next, and then you're going to get into texts and such. If you are studying uh, Arabic to be able to speak read and write Arabic then you're going to get into vocabulary immediately on the first day. And so the Academy is focused on observing how something works, not with the intention of being a participant, not with the intention of being a practitioner, whereas the madrasa, the intention is to be a practitioner of what you're learning. And so we would call the madrasa style of learning embodied knowledge, and we'd call the academic style of learning disembodied knowledge. Now, of course, if you're in professional school, law school, med school, business school, then there's an assumption you're going to be practicing, uh, that you're learning law, to practice the law right okay uh, can someone nod your head let me know you can hear me because all of you are frozen on my screen can you hear me yeah you are okay good because everybody was frozen for a moment all right so i want to look a little bit more on this uh this author's note And this particular quote, as a Muslim, I find the beliefs, doctrines, and conceptions of the Islamic faith intellectually and spiritually fulfilling, and indeed thrilling. The first part we're going to focus on, and then the second part we're also going to look at, but also as a Muslim, I feel a deep sense of frustration and alienation as to the way I interact with the world and the way the world interacts with me. So first let's look at the second half of this quote as a muslim i feel a deep sense of frustration and alienation as to the way i interact with the world and the way the world interacts with me so it's a question for all of you so we have the the five of us here and it looks like a couple of people came and left uh how do you feel about about the practice if you were to be brutally honest how do you feel about the practice and life of a Muslim growing up in in America, living life in America. Is it something akin to what he's describing here? What do you think? Especially this part. Any thoughts?
1: I think it's said pretty well. Honestly, um, uh, we tend to uh, accept when we're studying the religion by itself. I think a lot of us are fascinated, whether it's with the stories of the Prophet, whether it's how, you know, signs of the day of judgment or how the whole, the miracles in the Quran, uh, just as how, as literature, basically, and how it's basically divine. But then at the same time, when we're in the modern world, when it comes to, like, practical terms, um, as a young American born and raised here, uh, it's, you know, when he says that sense of frustration, alienation, um like, I think I've been able to like balance throughout, but it's very difficult for the majority of people to be able to integrate into the society while adhering to your practices and beliefs. Cause it's just so tough, whether it's, you know, with drugs, with the opposite gender. I mean, if you want to fit in and you want to be part of it, it's very difficult to be able to tell people like, Hey, I can't come out and, you know, to the bar or to the club tonight um, when everyone is doing it. And you just naturally feel that sense of alienation. So Um, you know, that's, that's frustrating. So I think I agree with that. Um, indeed thrilling. That's, that's an interesting way to put it. I'm not sure about, I, I mean, it's a good challenge, but I've never seen it as thrilling. I think that's an interesting way to put it, but, Mm -hmm.
0: um, that's just, those are just my thoughts. Yeah, totally. Uh, anyone else want to share? And we're saying if we're being brutally honest with ourselves about, uh, our thoughts of being Muslim, practicing Islam in our society in 2020, is that second half, does that second half describe how you feel?
2: Yeah, I think as as you said, uh, the frustration, it's uh, when you're growing up, it's true frustration because you don't know, you're still growing up, you don't know the answer, so you're always thinking, why can't I do this while everybody else is doing it? You feel like your religion holds you back and within that it creates, creates frustration because you don't know, you're still young, you still don't know what's good or bad for you and that's a sense of frustration that I've dealt with is that you can't have fun as they say it so you know mm-hmm. it's frustrating because my boys they you know they're all white as I said and they go to bars and everything and I go but I don't drink and so I'm just there and mm-hmm. years I don't like going anymore because there's nothing to do mm-hmm. Just and we we'll drink water
0: it's and not watch it. and watch everyone get plastered yeah yeah, yeah. So one aspect <clears throat> you're both speaking about it, is the social aspect of it, and then let's take it a sense deeper. If you were to honestly answer this question for yourself, or honestly, if your peer, your Muslim peers were to honestly answer this question, the question being, do you believe Islam and the Islamic tradition uh, is relevant? Uh, to your lives what do you think
2: what do you mean by tradition
0: so so whatever in your imagination we mean by the so-called islamic tradition one of the issues is i think most people don't know what we're even talking about when we're speaking of that anyone
1: I was saying something but she was muted
0: well, honey, you were saying something?
3: i was just so my experience is a little bit different i i did go uh, live off on my own for a couple of years but then I got married young. I got married when I was 20. I had a kid when I was 21, Alhamdulillah. And I think that kind of protected me from a lot of other things. Um, I mean, and and just, I think just the kind of person I am, I was never attracted towards like bars or clubs, even though I went to UT, which is like a party school um, back in Texas. But you know, Alhamdulillah, like that was not something, that was not something I was inclined towards. There you go, Yep. I I actually went to UT for the first couple of years. So uh, graduated from U of H. Um, but I would just say, uh, yeah. So, but for me, Islam has definitely challenged. And then I have three girls. So, you know, raising girl. girls with Islam, uh, has definitely challenged me to think about my faith intellectually. And I would agree for me, it's been a thrilling journey because I think as I'm watch, as I'm raising them, I'm exploring more and more of Islam and the depth mm-hmm. of it. And it's, um, That's why I'm here in this class today (laughs) because it just, it fascinates me. And it it is, uh, it's been a good thing for me.
0: Okay, very, very good, Michelle. So you have not felt uh, the second half of this?
3: I have, uh, I mean, back in the day, like high school, college, yeah, middle school. um, But I think after marriage and kind of getting that stability in my life, no, definitely I've felt. In fact, because I've lived in conservative neighborhoods, I've connected a lot with like my Jewish and Christian neighbors um uh, mm-hmm. so yeah it's been a good thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I, I know i understand the experience uh as well i, I have f- faced it and but it feels like a long time ago
0: yeah totally totally the i would suggest <clears throat> that for uh a great many people in our society the second half of this quote is true uh not so much the first half and the second half some of it Uh, being related to the exact points that you all mentioned which is just the social interaction aspects that because I'm Muslim there's things I'm not allowed to do that other people do that look like fun that I am uh, prevented from doing and I'm saying when we go even deeper there's this internalized sense that Islam is not really relevant or there's this internalized sense for a whole lot of people that something isn't working and Uh, I do think that is true for a whole lot of people in our society. I think the fortunate few are those who do find this fulfilling, spiritually fulfilling. uh, And then on top of that, intellectually thrilling. I do believe that there are some people who do feel that way. And I believe that those are sort of the fortunate few in our greater community. What I'm suggesting (coughs) is that this frustration and alienation is so deep. That, uh, by and large, as a community, we've embraced, we've internalized a sense of defeat more than we actually uh, 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 admit it to ourselves or even know to admit it to ourselves. And one simple way to, to think about that is uh, if you were to live Islam, you know, with full practice or leave Islam and live the way you want, which of those two lives would you suspect is easier and more fun, more fulfilling, and all those. And I would suggest if most people are being honest with themselves, they would look at life outside of Islam as being easier, more fulfilling, more fun. And uh, 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 this is some of what he is also going to address, because You know, like he's saying, like Hani's also mentioning that, all right, there is something definitely thrilling in this thing that we call Islam. And some of these issues relate also to how do we, how do we uh, understand this thing that we do call Islam by and large, uh, that for a whole lot of people in our community, I think it's when they think of Islam, they think of something from the past. Uh, Adil, you raise your hand?
2: Yeah, I just wanted to regress a little as to what Hani said about the thrilling part of it. And... And now looking back at how she said it, I've ha- I have found Islam thrilling. And the only sense I got it, got the thrilling aspect is because I was made a leader in a community, in a Muslim community. And so when you're in a leadership position where Islam is something it becomes a part of you, I think that when it gets thrilling because you are responsible for these other p- people. And you know uh, how I've worked with various kinds of people in that aspect. And that's when it becomes thrilling. But if you're just a follower and you're just doing what you're supposed to do, supposed to do, and you're not thinking about it, it's not thrilling. And I think mm-hmm. that problem lies is we internalize Islam as something, as you said, of the old and the past, and not an evolving, uh, uh, an evolving. I don't want to say evolving because that puts that insinuates uh, innovation, but a living thing. It's you know it's present in all of us, and mm-hmm. we don't do it that way.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a fascinating point that's common between what you said and what Hani said, Hani, in the context of, of raising her daughters yourself, in the context of being a leader both in both cases, this uh, this sense that you have responsibility to other people, which then has compelled further learning or further study. I think uh, there's something insightful there. So. Okay, moving forward a little bit. <clears throat> uh, having spent my entire life a humble student of, a student of Islamic theology and law, uh, a small point here... Whoops. Uh, that's not what I want. Okay, uh, a small point here in terms of his background. Uh al-Fadl is a full sheikh, a full scholar from Al-Azhar University. So Al-Azhar University, as you probably know, is one of the oldest universities in the world of any tradition. Uh, uh, perhaps a little bit older is Qayda Wiyin in Morocco, and, which was founded by two sisters. Uh, they, they inherited some money from their father and they decided to dedicate it to the to the building of a madrasa and even during construction they fasted every single day to make this as pious of an endeavor as possible now a thousand years later it's a it's a full full university and not long after that al-azhar was formed both of these are in the 900s and so Khalil al-fadl went to uh, went to al-azhar uh, where he he got his islamic credentials and then in the west he has both a Ph.D. in Islamic studies, uh, which I believe is from Princeton, and a law degree from Yale. And so one of his strengths is that he has both traditions in his training, uh, the secular tradition as well as the religious tradition. And then on top of that, he has the legal tradition of both sides, so, so the modern secular, modern secular law as well as the, the traditions of, of, of Islamic studies. So he's a very, very big scholar you uh, now in terms of age he's 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 pretty elderly i don't know how many years he has left he's growing progressively weak uh he still posts periodically almost weekly these these type things on on youtube sometimes it's fun to watch because of how passionate he gets uh, and he's also produced many many uh scholars uh under under his tutelage um, he was he spent his last years uh professionally at ucla i think he still lives in in california in la and he's still very very accessible to students so uh this top half of the page he talks about the experience of he of the disappointment that his faith is being uh, misunderstood by people around him i don't think we need to go into that because i think we're all very well familiar with the fact that by large people around us have uh, uh are very fun uh have very big misunderstandings uh, uh, about islam so then he says that we as muslims live submerged in a profound set of contradictions among these contradictions the mere existence of which speaks volumes is the fact that it is a basic and foundational article of faith for every muslim that islam is a religion of peace compassion and mercy right that's what we keep saying to ourselves and of all the attributes of allah in the quran rahma often translates mercy is is perhaps the most repeated of all the attributes. Rab is another one that's among the most re- repeated, which would be translated as nourisher, sometimes translated as lord. And then he says, accordingly, Islam manifests itself by bringing peace, compassion, and mercy to humanity at large. Yet one must frankly admit that in the minds of most non-Muslim inhabitants of this earth, these are not the values that are normally associated with the Islamic faith. These paradoxes, which are all too persistent part of the lived experience of most contemporary religious and non religious Muslims, could have many causes and reasons. This is essentially what most of the book is going to be about. Try to make sense of the mess that is in the world and where Islam fits in this is what he's exploring. Is the root cause of these contradictions paradoxes a lack of education or a simple lack of knowledge of true real facts. So Is it fair to say, would you agree that uh, by and large, our Muslim societies, whether we're speaking in America or globally, would you agree that there is something wrong, dysfunctional, unhealthy, or do you disagree? What do you think? For whatever you know, anecdotally or scientifically, what are your thoughts? Is there something inherently seeming to be broken or dysfunctional in our communities?
2: Everything? <laughs>
0: this is what I'm asking. <clears throat>
2: yeah. I mean, just from the whole root of root of it to the problem is Islam doesn't translate really well into culture, the culture we live in. Okay.
0: And so you are saying it's irrelevant, or it's not relevant.
2: <clears throat> irrelevant in its sense, but I mean, relevant to the fact that if you want to go to Jannah, you better to follow it. But yeah. if you want to live in this dunya, it becomes very hard. And the prime example you gave uh, last week was the marriage problem, uh, was how it's so de- – there's no system for marriage. And after you said that, I was like, well, sh- or crap, like you were kind of right about that. <laughs> uh, I guess I'll get that Corvette then. But, you know, so it just it's the problem is so deeply inherent that – it's hard to discern exactly where the problem is or what the problem is. It's everywhere,
0: honestly. Okay. okay. Any other thoughts? Is uh, is there some essential dysfunction uh, or fundamental dysfunction in our communities? And if yes, what would be possible cause?
4: When you mean our communities, do you mean like our communities or like Islam? The Islamic community
0: as a whole, or what? So, I mean, Muslim community Chicago, Muslim community in America, Muslim community in Texas, Muslim community in Houston, Muslim community in Pakistan, Hyderabad, anywhere elsewhere. Yeah. What do y'all think? And a way to, so if we use a word other than dysfunctional, uh, we could use unhealthy, or if you compared uh, Muslim-majority countries with European countries, which do you, in terms of your reflex? seem to be more healthy and there's no right or wrong answers here no we uh his book is definitely saying there's a problem and so part of what we're doing as we're going through is trying to figure out as well as we can if there is a problem where is it and what's perhaps causing it so back to that question what do you think is there uh, this innate dysfunction
1: i think one of the i mean you touched it on last week just the uh, madrasa versus academic um oh. clash that occurs i think that's a um, issue that results in internal conflicts, because you have both parties in your Muslim communities that could be leaders going at it against each other. One, one person's like, you're being conservative, you're being traditional, whereas the other's like, you're being liberal, and you're just not able to hit that balance. that That is so essential to be able to integrate into this society so you can be successful in this stuff and in the hereafter. And then, I think on a bigger bigger issue, I mean, this is more just like American communities in general, which I believe the Muslim American community also has, is just we're so, um, I guess, what's the word? We just believe the world revolves around our Muslim American communities or our American communities that we forget that there's a whole world after that. Um, a narcissist, maybe that's a bit too harsh, but we just think that, you know, what, what and we see that in the cultural literacy of Americans, you know, the, the high school American, they don't know what's going on around the world. Um, whereas that's not the way a lot of other communities think, I feel, you know, so I think those are too big.
0: Yeah, Uh, uh, I do think there is in our community this sense of American exceptionalism that there is something uh, very, very special about us or unique about us uh, in terms of our history. So because of my work, uh, I get pulled into people's private lives quite a bit in into what's taking place in people's homes. And I would definitely say there's a whole lot of dysfunction. I would also say That for all the dysfunction we have, we're still doing better as a as a uh, demographic than almost every other community as well. So if you were to compare us to to the American Hindu communities, the American right wing evangelical, left wing evangelical Catholic communities and such, I would say we still have a ton of dysfunction and we're still doing light years better than almost everybody else. And all the issues you find in every other community we have in ours, uh, uh, everything from vices to abuses, uh, we have it all. Uh, and we're still doing like if you knew how much there was if you're not involved in the community, you'd probably be shocked by how bad things are. And you'd be more shocked by how, how worse things are in so many other communities. Uh, there are some differences, though, and not just in terms of quantity. Uh, uh, more often than not, uh, there are other communities that have more infrastructure in dealing with a lot of the problems. We as a community are, are still very young in terms of having internal infrastructure. So for example, you don't really need a doctor that is culturally competent, but it helps if you have a doctor who's culturally competent, especially if you're recently immigrated. But if you're going to a therapist, it's very important to have someone who's culturally competent. And we don't have too many, we don't have all that many uh, um, uh, therapists that are, that are culturally competent, um, you know, who can understand, all right, if, uh, uh, if there's this type of fight going on in the house, the therapist knows how to, how to address it. Uh, and I do also find myself feeling as I do the work I do in terms of on the chaplaincy side, uh, that I'm also watching our community disintegrate as well too. Uh, uh, that uh, I'm suggesting in terms of issues, as well as quantity, uh, 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 things are worse, I'm saying, in 2020 than they were in 2015. And, and some of that is just part of the process of evolution and such. is uh, asking, why do you say we're doing better when we don't have the proper infrastructure? That seems contradictive. Yeah, I'm saying that a lot of the issues we also have built into how families operate in terms of just dealing with things. Uh, uh, and so we have dysfunction in the families, but there's also still a sense of, of the bond of families. And a way to think about this is the common Muslim is going to be have much stronger relationships with their siblings and their cousins, and even second cousins, than the common member of almost every other community. And, and so within family infrastructure, There is more there uh, within societal, outside the family infrastructure, we have less. Does that make sense?
1: You think it's possible that another reason that we're doing better than other communities is because the majority of us tend to be middle class. That way we're not facing problems whereas the first class people face, because those are also drugs and things like that, that tends to be more prevalent there, but at the same time facing, you know, just like gang violence or things like that, that, that tend to be prevalent in the lower class.
0: I do. Uh, I do think that's that's a, a fair assessment as part is perhaps part of the issue. Uh, I'm also including so I'm not limiting ourselves to Desis and Arabs that are in the middle class. Uh, I'm also including African Americans, I'm also including Latinos and such. And this is all anecdotal. Right. Uh, but like one way to think about this is why does, uh, why does such a huge uh, amount of the right-wing evangelical community support a man and its president who represents the exact opposite of everything that Christianity stands for? And, and in terms of the, the rural uh, uh, communities, the amount of breakdown that's taking place there is comparable to just about any part of American society. I'm talking about breakdown of family, I'm talking about suicide numbers, I'm talking about drug addiction numbers, uh, they're at the top of the charts, if not off the charts, compared to any other demographic uh, and, in the world. And their church attendance is not any higher than it is. The stereotype is that they're all churchgoers. No, not so much. You know, We would think that they're churchgoers, but uh, uh, the reason why they have these mega churches like Joel Osteen and such is because the local church is not being able to keep people inside. And so then you'll have these charismatic figures that everyone flocks to. And, and so, so there, uh, I do think there is a socioeconomic component to it that you know, people who are more laborers, blue collar workers, who've been hit by massive economic changes, uh, have, they've also suffered massive effects on, on family life. But uh, yeah, I still do think, you know, really to the point you're making, is that some of it just simply has to do with the fact of of being middle class and having a certain level of of literacy. Uh, Nevertheless, I would still say we are far, far below where we easily can be as a community. So I'm still saying we're doing better than just about everybody else, but we're we're still doing far, far lower. And my primary diagnosis, like he's asking, is it lack of education or lack of real facts? My diagnosis uh, thus far is simply that we don't have that many people who are doing active work in the community. So all the problems we can think of, whether we're talking about patriarchy, whether we're talking about uh, 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 you know being traditional versus being modern, power hungry, whatever the case may be, all of it can actually be traced back to the fact that we have a tiny amount of people that are actually doing community work. and And everything else is a secondary consequence of that. So why is the masjid for many people not a welcoming place? It's because there's not enough people to actually do the work to, to make the masjid a welcoming place. You know, why is patriarchy so dominant in our community? Well, because we have a small amount of people and they're basically, you know, that are running the mosques and such. They're not being as exclusive as we might imagine because they don't have control over the community. Meaning if I, uh, there's nothing stopping me from starting my own movement with zero money even. Um, for whatever cause I want to do. But we don't find that many people that are actually doing that work more often it's, it's looking at the community as a bunch of aunties and uncles and primarily uncles that are that are controlling things that's my diagnosis. So then he says is this predicament the unavoidable outcome of the legacy of historical conflicts between the world of Islam and the abode of Christendom and the West so this I also want to draw attention to. So (laughs) there is a concept. In Islamic law of Dar al-Islam versus Dar al-Harb, I'll type this in the group box. So Dar al-Islam. So that is still a concept. And the idea is that Dar al-Islam would be the lands of Islam. And Harb, anybody know what the word Harb means? It means war. And so that the default relationship is one of conflict or potential conflict. Like if we were to really be technical in terms of Islamic law, uh, you're actually, if you're living in, in the lands of Islam, you're not allowed to leave to the lands outside. They're considered by default to be hostile to Islam and hostile to Muslims. Yet in the past century, as many as 400 million or 500 million people, it's estimated, have moved from Muslim-majority lands to non-Muslim-majority lands, whether it's as refugees or as immigrants, whatever the case may be. And why? I mean, primary reason is, of course, economics. And a secondary reason is to escape persecution. Uh, And so what we are experiencing right now with this dichotomy between Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Harb is is, uh, a scenario that we've never seen before. In the history of the world in the history of islam where you have a huge amount of muslims that are living outside of muslim lands and they're growing increasingly influential so one of his big targets for the problems in the muslim world will be saudi oil money and if we were to look at islam in america back in the 1980s and 1990s uh there was a lot of a lot of of what we would call petrodollars coming in to, to fund a lot of Muslim organizations. And then related to that, we saw a rise of, of the Wahhabi movement, the rise of the Salafi movement, which some people even go so far as to say it's broken uh, a lot of things. Of course, others would disagree. Uh, but the point is that this is one of, one of his targets. And, and, and so, we, uh, what is also, so what I'm saying is that in the 80s and 90s, the Islam of Saudi Arabia uh, culturally, uh, became one of the more influential approaches to Islam across the world. And an easy way to think about that is how many of your Daisy friends, male friends, dress in phobes, you know, versus Shilvarkamis. I mean, uh, just about everybody here is Daisy. Uh, if we were to look at how the Sahaba dressed, uh, they didn't dress in phobes. Their clothes looked a whole lot more like Shilvarkamis, those who had some amount of means, uh, uh, often, you know, many of the Sahaba were very, very poor, so all they had was literally like a sheet to wrap around themselves. Uh, but there is this sentiment that if I dress in a phobe, it's somehow more Islamic. And that is one of the side cultural offshoots of, of this, uh, this Saudi influence at the cultural level. And, and, and so another uh, point to consider is that Islam in America is growing increasingly influential uh, uh of the various islams across the world uh but that i would suggest to you is hap- well, i one saying it, this is something that's happening meaning it's more likely that someone in a, in uh, outside of america muslim in a different country will be familiar with some of our heroes within the community or outside of the community than we will be familiar with some of their uh major figures right and so so the point is that people outside of America, Muslims outside of America, have probably heard of Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Omar Suleiman, and such, Yasir Qadi, Probably not Khalil al-Fadl as much just because he's more in the academy. Hamza Yusuf, they probably would have heard of. Um, uh, whereas it's harder to mention the names of big scholars and big figures in many Muslim-majority countries. And I'm suggesting some of that just has to do with the fact that American media is dominant in the world. That's one point. Another point to think about is, is when we speak of the secular West, uh, is that still the lands of Christendom? Uh, I think it depends upon who we're, who we're speaking to. I still believe that the default, even though the secular West is officially secular and Europe has pretty much shed itself of Christianity, except in terms of culture, uh, uh, there's still the sentiment that Europe and America and the European settler states are by default Christian. Whereas the Muslim states are something different. So. And so moving forward. And so right now we're just looking at, 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 at uh, different pieces of the things he's addressing. Uh, the aim of this book, and we're at the bottom of this page. The aim of this book are far more modest. The book is an attempt to make a contribution to a theology of human moral progress. So one of the points we, we talked about last time is that you have Orthodox Judaism and then you have Reform Judaism. And Reform Judaism is about 80% of Jews in America. Orthodox is about 20%. There's also a third group, the conservative Jews, which are sort of, it was sort of an attempt to, to bridge the, uh, the, the two, but it's, it's sort of falling by the wayside. And so when he's speaking of a theology of moral progress, he's also making uh, a very, very provocative point here this is a book on what we would call progressive Islam. And, and what is an essential difference when he's speaking of this theology of moral progress is not unlike the difference uh, in terms of Orthodox Judaism versus Reform Judaism. And I touched on this a little bit last time that Orthodox Judaism is, has the text, being the Torah and the Talmud and this history of tradition that it that, uh, informs Jewish life and practice. So. Reform Judaism is focused more on the value of being Jewish, not so much the text of being Jewish. So what makes you Jewish? Because I feel Jewish, whatever that means. And so there might be some amount of practice, but not necessarily. And usually the practice is in kosher law observance and such. But you may or may not be marrying somebody Jewish. More than likely, you're going to be marrying somebody who's not Jewish. And, and But you still have some affinity uh, with Judaism and the Jewish people. And of course, the politics around Israel are a big part of all of this as well, which has had different meanings for different generations. The meaning of Israel for a 20-year-old Jewish student versus a 40-year-old Jewish student is also very, very different. Uh, And so this movement that is progressive Islam is sort of like the reformed Judaism of of Islam. And so it's being informed more so from the academy than from the madrasa. So the madrasa, the focus would be on the text and somewhat of the history of tradition to inform Muslim life and practice. And so of the big madrasa schools, there would be Al-Azhar, which is where he's from, as well as Qayruwiyin, which I'm gonna keep connected with Al-Azhar, which, but although they do some different, you have Deoband in the Indian subcontinent, you have Medina University in Medina, of course, and you have a couple of other smaller schools, and I'm gonna speak of them as sort of independent teachers. So for example, if you go to Jordan, if you go to Syria, you'll be studying at institutions, but the, the bigger connection is going to be to, to lineages of teachers and such. So those are the big ones that inform a lot of the religious or the or, quote-unquote orthodox side, traditional side of Islam in America. Yeah. But then we have the progressive school, which be the people who have PhDs and who are looking through the lens of, okay, what are the innate values of Islam? And so they'll keep using words like mercy over and over again, like a theology of mercy, a theology of peace. And what I suggested last time uh, was that that's where in 10 years, 20 years max, you're going to find the big clash in terms of Islam's in America, the traditional side versus the progressive side. And the roots of that have already been forming. Uh, And they're going to get progressively more and more solidified. But what is deeper that's taking place, it's basically the progressive school is forming because they're saying the traditional school doesn't work, or does not answer what our needs are. So he is framing himself within this progressive school, and the idea is moral progress. So, so there was a fight among professors of Islamic studies this past summer. It was kind of a strange fight. I don't remember if I mentioned in this previous classes, but, uh, the conversation began about Islam and slavery and one side, which is sort of the traditional side, just basically spoke about, all right, you know, here's Islam, Islamic law regarding slavery. And it's fair to assess that by and large, Islam is anti-slavery, or pro-liberation. But it still gives permission on, on, on having slaves, on having concubines and such. And the progressive side is saying, no, that's wrong. You cannot have slaves. And this led to pages and pages and pages of emails of people fighting back and forth. I don't know how many. I don't know how professors have this much amount of time to actually write so many pages of emails. Uh, but it illustrated this huge uh, uh, breach between two groups. And that uh, uh, I'm suggesting is what you're going to see more and more in our community. And more often in our community, you're gonna see many people who are gonna side on the progressive side because their arguments are easier to understand and they fit more right. in this sort of a, a leftist-leaning uh, 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 thought. Uh, good or bad, I'm, I'm just basically saying this is inevitable. So, so that's where he is framing himself theory, a theology of moral progress within the Islamic tradition. Uh, And in so doing, he is, uh, he is also trying to really emphasize the Islamic tradition. Uh, Muhammad, did you have a question?
4: No, just, I was surprised by how you said that majority of people are progressive now.
0: I mean, think of, uh, think of all the Bernie bros, you know, uh, uh, think of all the people, you know, who, who support, uh, Bernie's, uh, politics, you know, to the point that they may not even vote for Biden, you know? And so, so, uh, Bernie Sanders, politics is not just, you know, his political stances. Uh, it includes a particular type of worldview of how society should be, how society should operate, you know? Uh, and that is consistent with what you would see here, uh, and and so sometimes they're called the progressive left. You know? And and so I think it's it's a lot more present than you know right or all around you than you might realize. You know, it's just that people haven't officially taken uh, an Islamic stance on it yet, but it's there. It's very very present. Okay and and so then you know he he talks about uh what he's hoping to do but he is trying to wrestle with the big questions of 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 society and and so let me talk a little bit about who are the salafis and who are the wahhabis and such so the salafi movement is sort of like a muslim version of the protestants so if you're going to if we were to go through a high-speed search through the history of christianity there's a couple of periods that are like major moments one of course course would be the the first century of Christianity Uh, but one of the earliest major moments would be would be Constantine in fact maybe I should write this all down for all you let's whip out the whiteboard so super high-speed study of the history of Christianity then we'll do a super high-speed study of the history of Islam okay so A uh, simple question for any of you. How long? So we're in the year 2020. How long have we been using this calendar? Anybody know?
2: Since or, the Aztecs. Since when? The Aztecs.
0: Okay. Any other guesses?
4: Um, so isn't it called the Gregorian calendar? So I know before that we had the Julian calendar, which was like 2,000 years ago.
0: Okay. So how long ago did we start using the Gregorian calendar? I don't know. 2,020
4: five, 20 years
3: ago, maybe?
0: We would think but probably about 500 years ago. That recent. Pope Gregory 60, is as well, but. Yeah, we would think that you know, it's 2,000, but a lot of theology actually backward you know, lays claim to things in in, in, in the backwards uh, things in history. So where'd my image go? How come you can't see me anymore? Uh, and so, so oh, there I am. Uh, so for example, uh, you know, when we often say the difference between Sunni and Shia is who should have been the Khalifa, at the time of the prophet's death, right? Peace be upon him. Okay, that was not an issue that came up until about a hundred years later. Meaning there weren't people around at the time saying, no, Ali should be the Khalifa versus Abu Bakr. Uh, This is something that develops later. Uh, And then theologically then, you know, that which we call Sunni, that which we call Shia, then gives an interpretation of of, of history and such. So high speed uh, view of the big, big moments in terms of the history of Christianity, and then getting into us some of this, So here, of course, we have theoretical year zero. Uh, Around the year 300, we have Constantine, his conversion. So what was the plight of Christianity? Until that point, Christianity was a renegade movement. So one of the cool places to go to if you ever go to Turkey is Cappadocia. And Cappadocia is these really, really strange hills. Look it up on on, on Google. Um, Made from volcanic ash uh, or from volcanic lava. And, and and to avoid persecution by the Romans, Christians would build these caves six stories down to hide. And then along comes Constantine, becomes Muslim, and then or becomes Christian, and then Christianity becomes the religion of, of uh, the era. Four hundreds, we have we have Saint Augustine, and he's the first person after Paul to really uh, set up a theory of Christianity. Okay. Then we jump forward to the 1100s, give or take, and we have the schism. So until this point, there's essentially one Christianity, but now it splits between Eastern and Western Christianity. So the Byzantines and the Romans. The Romans are based in Rome. The Byzantines are based in Constantinople. Constantinople is modern Istanbul. And then we have the 1500s. And here we have the Protestant Reformation. So what's taking place here, Martin Luther, John Calvin, a few other people are saying, we don't need the church to get closer to God. Now, uh, this whole period from give or take St. Augustine till just about the Reformation is also considered to be the Dark Ages. And this gets all the more interesting because this is the age, this is the period in which Islam is flourishing as a civilization. Because the prophet comes along around the year 600, right, 570, and then 610 is when he starts receiving revelations and such. And right around here is the end of the Abbasids. This part's not as important for you to write right now. But what I want to draw your attention to is that then we have in the 1700s, we have the Enlightenment, and then all that stuff we talked about last week in Lie Tenment, and so in the Reformation we were saying we don't need the church to get closer to God. In the Enlightenment they're saying we don't need religion to get to have a better life. We have philosophy, and that gets replaced by modernity, where we're saying we have science, which is better than philosophy. And the modern era would be the capitalist era where we're saying we have business, which is better than science, which is better than philosophy, which is better than religion, except when they can all be used. Okay. And so in the Reformation, uh, why is the Reformation taking place in the 1500s? They give, they give all kinds of arguments for you know, why we don't need a church. But one big reason is because now with the printing press, remember you learned about Gutenberg and the printing press, Now it is affordable to own a Bible, which means I, as a lay Christian, can read the Bible for myself and understand what God wants from me. And if you understand that, you understand one of the essences of the Salafi movement. Because the Salafi movement is arguing what? The Salafi movement is saying that, all right, we have all these schools of law, Hanafi, Shafi, Maliki, and all that stuff, and they're all humans, they're gonna make mistakes. I can access the hadith on my own. And I can study them on my own to learn my Islam. And so if we were to go to a second screen, most of this is 20th century in terms of Islam. But again, let me give you a super high speed uh, development of the history of Islam, just to put everything together. So, once again, we got the Prophet, peace be upon him, and companions. That's probably the worst writing in the history of the word companions. Hold on. Okay. So, As if I had an issue in life, and I'm living at the time of the Prophet peace be upon him, I would ask him what's the answer to this. If I'm living among the Sahaba after the Prophet has died, I'd go to them. But as they're dying off, and then those who follow them, the Tabi'in, Tabi Tabi'in, those are falling off. Now I don't have people to go to, and so then we see the rise of Islamic legal schools, basically trying to answer the questions using that that formal material. And while that is taking place, we then have the rise of the hadith schools. So this is Bukhari and Muslim and all those people. So legal schools are basically saying, all right, you got questions, let's figure out answers. Okay. But then what's also taking place is that people are quoting the prophet left and right. And so then we have this rise of Hadith schools to try to figure out what is authentic. And then as the empires are growing, then we start seeing the rise of the theological schools. So if you've heard terms like Ashari, Maturidi, all those things, and these we'll touch on as they become relevant. And then after that, now we're basically uh, into about the year 1000 of our calendar, meaning the Gregorian calendar. it's about 400 years after the death of the Prophet. Then we see the rise of the Sufi tariqas, which are saying that, all right, we need to bring people together in terms of the development of their Iman, development of their heart, and these were also social activists. So what I'd like you to think about is these things that we call Islamic law and our Hadith texts, our theological texts. These are all forming at different parts of history in response to need, like an absence. Jump really far forward into the colonial era. So, so this is uh, this is about a thousand to about twelve hundred. This is when the Sufi schools originally start forming, and then. We have the colonial era. So what you don't see me listing here are the Muslim empires. That would be a whole thing of its own. But what did the colonial era do? They rewrote everything. They rewrote the curricula of Islamic schools, leading to the post-colonial era, which is what we are sort of still in now. There's still a post-colonial consciousness. And so then we see the rise of the revivalist movements. So the Ikhwan al-Muslimi and the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, the uh, Jama'ati Islami would be, would be part of this. Again, addressing what? Some hole that's there that churches are trying to plug, that they're trying to fill. And one of these revivalist movements is what we would call the Salafi movement. And so the Salafi movement, usually the revivalist movements, are speaking through the lens of scholarship. So the Deoband school is a response to colonialism in India. And if you're familiar with, with Islam in the subcontinent, if you've heard of Aligarh, same thing. little Ulama. If you don't remember, if you don't know these names, that's fine. But these are schools that are forming in response to colonization. And then there's movements like the Muslim Brotherhood and jamaat islam that are responding to colonization. And then we start seeing the rise of this Salafi movement, which in America is called the Salafi movement, but in Muslim majority lands, uh, it's often called Ahl al-Hadith. And they're basically saying, okay, I have Bukhari on a bookshelf right in front of me. I can read Bukhari and interpret it for myself. And, and so the traditionally trained scholars were very much critical of the Salafis saying, all right, you need some training to be able to interpret these texts. It would be, for example, like me, non-physician, going to WebMD to get my diagnosis. And then I discover, all right, I have every disease under the sun, even my ovaries aren't working right, you know, if I go to, to WebMD without, without training, right? And so this is the issue. With the writing of Bukhari, Bukhari is not giving you a manual on Islam. Bukhari is giving the scholars a particular view of Islam that he organizes through about 8,000 hadith. Muslim is giving a different view of Islam uh, that he's organizing through a smaller number of hadith. So they're not writing these books as manuals on how to live life. But that's what the Salafi movement is doing. It's turning those into manuals on how to live life. And one of the things that miss, it's missing is that if you don't have training, then you're going to interpret according to whatever uh, tools you might have might be coming from a different professional field, or it might be just your whims. And one of the big problems is you won't know how to prioritize what's more important, what's less important. And Khaldab al-Fadl tends to be very aggressively critical of the Salafi movement. Uh, I look at them more as just a reality of the evolution of of Islamic thought and such. But he'll explain his arguments. And a lot of his arguments, I do think, are are, are very strong. The Wahhabi movement is a little bit different. (laughs) So the Wahhabi movement forms in the 1700s as a revivalist movement connected to one person, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. And so this is pre-oil. Right, so no one cares about Arabia uh, except for Mecca and Medina until oil comes along. But they're a movement that gained a lot of power in the Middle East, in large part because their message is super simple: that they're defining everything according to theology. Okay, so let me let me address this point, then we'll call it a day. Uh, and hopefully, this won't be too confusing. Um, So when you have, uh, so in terms of, of questions, usually in Islam, the questions are answered in the category of Islamic law. Am I allowed to eat this? Am I allowed to do that? What am I supposed to do for this and that? Usually they're answered in Islamic law. In Christianity, they're usually answered in theology. So Christianity doesn't have very much law, right? Uh, Catholicism has, has canon law, but Christianity usually doesn't have law. So think of any hot button political issue, LGBT. Uh, through Islam, usually it's being addressed through Islamic law saying, okay, you can, you can identify as gay, but it's the actions that are being critiqued. Okay. Theology, If you're gay, then by definition, you yourself are blasphemy. Your existence is blasphemous in terms of Christianity. But in the Wahhabi movement, they started answering questions through theology, which basically said anything that looked against monotheism, meaning that became their focus, anything that looked, became, uh, 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 different than monotheism, was by definition shirk. So a simple question. If you tell a lie, are you committing shirk? And let me really frame it. Suppose you're telling a lie. In that moment, you're saying, so let's say I lie to you. uh, And I say, X, Y, Z. uh, uh, Why am I lying? Either because I want you to give me some benefit or I'm afraid of something. right? So if a student tells me they've done their homework, but they haven't, um either they're hoping not to get in trouble by me or they're hoping to get the reward okay right that's why we lie uh, every lie is going to be either to gain a reward or to avoid some sort of suffering is that shirk because in that moment i am saying your ability to reward me or to punish me is greater than my concern for allah rewarding me or punishing me is that shirk why or why not so honey you're saying no why
3: So, and the uh, whole oh can you hear me now
0: yeah i can hear you now yeah.
3: okay i don't consider it shirk but i understand the whole bidah movement where uh-huh. it's all bidah. it's just something that and therefore it's huh? well I, I guess placing anything above allah but you're not really i don't think you're placing anything above allah intentionally uh-huh. um you're just doing it for the reward i have to think more deeply about it but okay. yeah.
0: Okay, anyone else? What do you think? I
3: definitely don't think that's shirk, but I can see why people would say it is.
0: Okay, all right. Adil Usaid, Muhammad Amina. So, by your definition,
2: uh, Usayed was going
0: to go ahead. Go ahead, Adil. Go ahead,
2: Adil. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, by your definition, when you say it that way, simply add shirk, but as uh, Hani said, when, what are you putting above Allah? It's such an abstract question because what exactly there's no definition of what you're putting above Allah, you just okay. assume you're putting something above Allah. There's such an abstraction that, or I don't even know if that's a word, but there's just such a big gap between um, the the reality and to what it could be.
0: Uh-huh.
2: It doesn't, it, there's not enough evidence to constitute it as shirk.
0: Okay, but what if the simple fact that okay, if I'm lying to you, your ability to reward me or punish me is more important to me in that moment than Allah rewarding me or punishing me. If Allah being more important to me, then I'd always be speaking the truth. you yeah, say say
1: same thing? that just Tani just texted that, yeah. uh, on the chat every single day, sure, you're placing either your own desires or your own, you know, whatever it may be, you're placing that above the law. So mm-hmm. those are all in the short term in the mm-hmm. way to... Mm-hmm. Every person, every man sins, right? Since Adam had a sin. So, I mean, Adam also, you know, sin, he placed his own desires above the lost commandments. Was that shirk? No, right? He just falls into desires. So I think based on that logic, I think. Okay. okay.
0: So I'm cautious about saying Adam committed shirk. That's a whole conversation on its own. But the point is you're making it still the same, that everyone sins. And yeah, if we take it to its logical conclusion, then every sin becomes shirk literally and so this is why questions are being answered in Islamic law they're focused on action which means you're only looking at the action you're not inquiring as much about the intention that's with with Allah Ta'ala and so when you shift to using theology for your answer or for your evaluation then everything gets evaluated according to monotheism right? which means anything that is not 100% obedience to Allah becomes by definition shirk, which means all sins are shirk. And so the Wahhabis had this long, very violent, bloody history of of just wiping out people that they were accusing of committing shirk. Stretching from the Arabian Peninsula all the way up into Iraq, uh, especially Shias, especially Sufis, you know, taking whatever they're doing and making it sound like like yeah and so essentially then this is the thing. everything is kofa. and so what is the essence of that it's not using law to define an action because someone can commit every single sin they're still a Muslim right but when you're looking through the lens of theology someone could commit a tiny sin and they're definitely they're technically not a Muslim anymore and, and so, so this is one of the essences of the approach of the Wahhabi movement. Uh, uh, that for them, that also became justification for destruction. So not even sin, any desire becomes shirk, sure. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and we'll stop right here, because we're already past an hour. Usually my, my goal is to, to focus on 40 minutes and such. Um, And so we're just laying out some of the big points of of what uh, Dr. Abdul Fadl is is emphasizing. And so, like I said, one of his big targets is the the Salafis and the Wahhabis. A lot of people make the mistake of making them one, um, but that has more to do with Saudi petrodollars uh, financing uh, a lot of things. And uh, any last thoughts or questions? Do you feel like you're learning things? Yeah. yeah.
1: Discussions. Easy, we discuss, I guess, just bringing um, actual knowledge into the modern implications that we tend to see. So I think mean, that's really
0: beneficial in Islam, long Michelle, Michelle, good. Okay. Uh, hani is asking, how is progressive Islam like political progressivism? You did say that there are similar underlying values, but can you explain that more specifically? So so when we speak of progressive Islam, some of it is out. <laughs> Some of the core values would include equality uh, in all aspects. So, so uh, uh, it would be very conscious of where is power, where is privilege, where, who are the dispossessed and such. And so the natural consequence would be something towards a socialist outlook okay. in terms of redistribution of wealth, especially anti-capitalist. And so, then, related to this core value of equality, justice and and equality uh, are then looked at as being very synonymous. So, that would be the uh, absolute core of it. But then, this would apply to big aspects like gender justice, so, and then inclusion across populations. Uh, Muhammad, you're raising your hand.
4: Wait. So, did you say that Wahhabis that you say they explain through or by theology? Yeah. Would you use like evidence by from the Hadith and Quran.
0: So, uh, yes, using evidence from Hadith and Quran. But the easiest way to think about this is that uh, in textbook Islamic thought, only Allah can dictate what is shirk. Okay. Which means only the Prophet peace be upon can tell us what is shirk because the Prophet's getting from Allah Taala which means you can't have analogies. Meaning I showed you how a lie looks exactly like shirk. Okay. But a lie is not a shirk unless the prophet says it's, it's shirk. In law, you use analogies left and right, right? So, so uh, what is prohibited in terms of drinking in the Quran? It's wine made from grapes. Khamar is wine made from grapes. Why is it prohibited? Okay, it's an intoxicant, therefore other intoxicants are by way of analogy also forbidden. but in theology the textbook rule is you can't use analogies you can make something look exactly like shirk but uh, uh, if it's not categorically clear from hadith you know from quran that it is shirk then you can't call it shirk even though it looks like shirk it walks like shirk it sounds like shirk see what i'm saying and so by using theology they are starting with quran and hadith but they're also using analogies to apply it to other things
4: So in a way, it's not like they're one hundred percent wrong. It's just, or wrong or right. It's just that we have a different view, and that's really it.
0: So that's that's a really a really good question. And and so depending upon whom we ask, if we ask traditionally trained people, they'd say this is totally categorically wrong and destructive. Uh, but a lot of the history of Islamic uh, learning is literally which ideas outlast everybody else. You know, so if you were to ask a traditional Islamic scholar. They would say that's wrong. If you were to ask them, prove them why, they'd say everything that I just said. You know, they use analogies, but you'd be like, yeah, who cares? You know. Um, and so, what really works is, you know, which are the schools that outlast everybody else, because those that tend to be extremists tend to fizzle out.
4: So you're saying that if I want to go smoke a joint and make a halal, I got to go to Wahhabi.
0: Potentially, I mean, they might they might tell you it's uh, it's shirk, but at least you'll have your fun until. You get executed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, honey, you had a question? Uh, still can't hear you. I'm sorry. Can you all hear? Her? I can't hear. Her.
3: You still can't hear me?
0: Now I can hear you. Now I can hear you. Yeah. Maybe my. Oh, I can hear you now. It just suddenly started. Yeah, Every time you start talking, it's like for three seconds or so.
3: There's like yeah. a lag. Okay.
0: Yeah.
3: I don't know maybe too many people on the internet downstairs. Um, I was just, are you familiar with El maghrib Institute?
0: Oh, they're totally Salafis. Yeah. So they
3: are Salafi, right? Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, not even a question. I mean, even Yasser qadi talks about how he's like a post-Salafi. He is still very, very Salafi, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, um, a lot more than he himself thinks of himself as Salafi. You know? But they're not Wahhabi though. Wahhabi is different.
3: So Wahhabi is more of a political movement, whereas Salafi is more of a religious
0: movement. Yeah. What also of... happened as, as oil was getting discovered in the Arabian Peninsula is that the tribes that these Najdi tribes in Northern Arabia, they cut a deal with, with the Saudi royal family. You know, basically, we'll give you a certain amount of, of patronage as long as you don't attack us. And that's one of the legacies of, of the Wahhabi movement. So. Uh, Mohammed.
4: Wait, can you quickly go over the definition of Salafi again? I
0: So Salafi would be the people who are focused on Hadith, uh, partially arguing, uh, we don't need to follow the history of scholars, we have the Hadith right here, I'm an intelligent person, I can read it for myself.
4: But would they agree with that scholars who use the Hadith are able and not the lay people?
0: So over the last 50 years, the Salafi movement has had a whole bunch of offshoots. So more and more, they've created their own scholars and will still defer to to scholars as opposed to a lay person. And and they've also merged more and more into the greater tradition too. Uh, But if we were to have this conversation 30 years ago, 50 years ago, um, like in the 1980s especially, the Salafis were uh, literally lay people who had Bukhari and Sahih Muslim and would say, this is all we need. You know, we don't need to listen to scholars to tell us what to do.
4: So the people who are, so right now you're saying, you're saying that the Salafi movement is more like, like the four main branches of Sunni?
0: Yeah, uh, much, uh, much, much more, right? And, and when we speak of the Sunni schools, Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, Hanbali they're often somewhat linked to the Hanbali school and those will be things we'll talk about later on inshallah any other questions okay the fact that you're all having questions means that you're paying attention and hopefully learning things so so I'll take that as a good sign as opposed to everyone dead silent sorry for going way way over time like I said my, my goal is to do 30 40 minutes inshallah for a session uh so we'll do a little bit more foundational stuff over the next few classes and then we'll get into his assessment of the problems and and possible solutions of, of Islam in our society and in the world, inshallah Okay, if you have any other questions until then, give me a holler. And uh otherwise we'll see you next week, inshallah. Right. Subhanakallah bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta be like. All right, reward you all wa right. rahmatullah I have just one more question. Yeah. So
4: this class what, what is it supposed to be like the main purpose and what
0: so, is... so in theory it's about Islamic law uh, and more accurately we're going through this book by this this professor Khalid Abu Al-Fadl called Reasoning with God mm-hmm. and so he's a scholar of Islamic law and he's written this really big fat book um, which is more so he's looking through the lens of a legal uh, scholar through the condition of the Muslim world and Muslim societies And some of it is hope, some of it is lament, and trying to make sense of how things work, how things should work.
4: So we're just trying to figure out, are we trying to learn about Islamic law in general, or just what he thinks of Islamic law?
0: Uh, It's sort of both. So think of me as providing commentary on the book. Okay. Yeah. Thank you.